Hello, welcome to Reference Desk, a performing arts and culture podcast. I'm your host, Garth Grimble, and in each episode, I'll explore a piece of dance culture with references, popular, personal, and otherwise. I'll share a companion video link so y'all have a visual reference of what I'm talking about. Let's get into it. On Tuesday's episode, I shared my experience with access services in the form of audio narration and touch tours. Today I'll be speaking with performing artist Jess Curtis, who introduced me to access services about his work, the development of access services, and how creating sensory diverse performances influences his spatial awareness and engagement. Curtis and his company Gravity had planned on opening a digital performance series this weekend. That show has been postponed, but you get to hear a little bit about it at the end of the interview. Hi, Garth. Hey, how are you? Good, how are you? Good. Thank you so much for giving me your time and for... No worries. Thank you so much for, yes, giving me your time and, yeah, being interested. Uh, Thank you so much. Uh, I was hoping that we could start with uh, just a little bit about your artistic background and uh, artistic interests. Sure. I mean, I um, studied dance and creative writing in school. I've been a dancer and choreographer based in the Bay Area since the mid-80s. And then starting in the late uh, 90s, I moved to Europe. And I've always been quite interdisciplinary um, in terms of I was in the company Contraband, where we played live music and danced and then was in a collective called core that <clears throat> were the same. We were, we all played music and, and danced and screamed our head off, heads off and made images. And, um, and then I was, yeah, in the, I moved to Europe to be specifically in a experimental circus company called Kahin Kaha, company Kahin Kaha. And, um, that was a lot of fun and kind of broadened the sort of interdisciplinary quality of the work and then I since then I, I stayed I kept I kept one foot in Europe over the last 20 years and um, have an apartment in Berlin and I go back and forth and um, yeah most of my work has been made made in international kind of co-production stuff which basic sounds sexy on one hand but it basically just means I beg people for money in two languages, <laughs> <laughs> at least two, if not yeah. three. Sometimes we sometimes we get some French funding in there too. But yeah, nice. Um, so my introduction to you was in 2018. I was producing a show at Counterpulse, and you contacted my partner Heather and I about beta testing um, audio description and haptic tours as part of your now broader access services. Um, And it was a real, I think, game changer for me in terms of just thinking about being someone who creates dance and ways to be accessible and ways to, uh, and and this is a very maybe like self-involved thing to say, but like think about myself in a way that is like presenting in a way that isn't just visual. Um, and, uh, when I was speaking with the first interview, I, 
um, of the season, we talked about architecture and architecture being made purely for visual senses versus what would it like be like to be in a space that is for a haptic or touch based or any of the other senses. Mm. Um, and so I really got to think about that with also dance and performance. And can you speak about how uh, your access services started and developed and, and how you're kind of implementing this project? Sure. I mean, I mean, if I go way back, I would say I've always been a sort of theories of perception geek um, from when I make work really kind of break, I tend to sort of break things down and go, okay, what are people hearing and what are people seeing and how am I as a director choreographer, I always kind of think about those things and go, how do I direct people's gaze? And I mean, I think any director choreographer is doing that all the time that we're, we're drawing people's attention to different parts of the stage by putting a dancer there. Like, in general, move, moving a body into a space is moving the audience's attention to someplace where people aren't usually prioritizing an empty stage over somewhere where a person is. And then with light and the volume of music and, um, and things like that, I, I tend to get, when I'm directing and choreographing, kind of nerdy and geeky and really tweak values of like, no, that should be 2% more brighter or that should be, you know, that sound needs to be out just a little, I like, I want 3% of the audience to be peers, but you know, um, and I want all the people who are sitting above the subwoofer to have a really nice vibrational feeling in their chair. Um, so I've always been that a bit that way. Um, and actually made a piece in 2005 where a company in the um in the midlands and in the uk um commissioned me to make a work and part of the their their remit they had already they were commissioning me and they had already commissioned or engaged a composer and gotten some funding to embed um an uh, visual uh, extra visual access or like an, an, a descriptive track into the sound score that everyone would hear. So kind of what we refer to now as an open description was part of the sound score and to have it embedded in an aesthetic way. So that was in 2005. Fast forward. Um, I, that kind of brought me into the world of, um, sort of professional disability, arts and culture in the UK and a long term. And that was my first collaboration with an artist named Claire Cunningham, who I've since collaborated in various constellations with, in my work at, with Claire as a performer in my work or me as a choreographic consultant in her work. And then we've co-produced uh, this piece, the way you look at me tonight um, in 2016 with that piece, um, we also had some funding to do, we had a week long access residency at the place in London where we were able to bring a bunch of really experts um, in the field of, of multi-sensory access into the student, share elements of our work with them and think through how do we build access into a work and not have it just be an add-on. So kind of some, a lot of traditional access accommodations are an audio descriptive track that's a guy 
usually a guy sitting in the in a booth and describing from a kind of disembodied point, viewpoint what's happening on stage for people with visual impairments or a sign language interpreter who's sitting in a spotlight off to one side in a black turtleneck you know doing sign language interpretation for deaf um, deaf audience members and we Claire's quite a and is a self-identified disabled artist and is very um, has pays a lot of attention to access and who Claire dances on crutches so spatial access and mobility access and being able to get in and out of architectures as uh, you mentioned earlier um, and um, and then yeah thinking about how do we make things accessible and and not just as an add-on so through all of that we we met some really interesting folks um up in particular chloe phillips uh, is a visually impaired director in the uk th theater director primarily and chloe has a great concept she has written about it. she calls stealth access of just like how do you build the access into work and her, I think a great example of that, she's like, all the characters in my pieces all have distinctly different sounding shoes. So once you've kind of figured out, oh, who's in the pumps and who's in the flip flops, then you can know who's walking on stage without the audio describer having to say, you know, Bob, who's wearing flip flops is walking on stage now, you know. Um, so I think things like that are really I've got really interested in that and that sort of multi-sensory haptic experience. And, and, but through that process, um, we re in reaching out to blind and low vision audiences in the UK or, or in San Francisco, we realized almost no one was providing this service in the Bay area or in California, or actually at that moment, really, it was almost not, it was very uncommon for live performance to be described um, and made accessible to um, to visually impaired audiences. So we had bought some equipment to be able to do that. And we started offering, we thought with you guys, we were like, well, what if we did it? We I did all this research on how to give access to her, a haptic access to her before a show and, and then how to describe during a show. And, and um, yeah, it was really fun to describe your work and, and figure out like how okay how how do we do this for other people when you know how do you get in in another artist's brain and figure out what's important to describe to make their work accessible to other people so and yeah kind of step by step we got some funding to go further with after that and and have been in the last five years um yeah building up that practice and even last year even with covid we sort of pivoted to a online um and and virtual um, platform and we've done a number of different shows for people uh, doing audio description for shotgun players in berkeley and cutting ball theater here and raw dance we just did um, audio description for their season at odc and figuring out how to do that as well as we've been doing you know, in, in the interim, also doing audio descriptions for people's video archives. Like we just did for Counterpulse, several videos that are in their video archive and Joanna Highgood and Zacco commissioned us to do four different videos that are in their video archive. So people are also looking at how do I make my whole, so that my whole, you know, my archive Ooh, accessible right. to yeah. people. Yeah. 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 So that's kind of where we're at now and, and, you know, trying to 
hoping to get back into actual theaters soon. Yeah. Yeah. But also it's been interesting getting all set up to do things online and realizing, Oh, actually, you know, we, we could be doing this more remotely, even when people start going back into theaters if somebody, if a theater in Bakersfield, if a community college in Bakersfield wants to, is doing a show and they want to make it accessible, if they can set up a camera and send us a feed on one Facebook live channel, we can send an audio feed back to them that their audience could just plug their phones in and have headphones on. Mm. And we could be delivering um, accessibility from our bedrooms in Oakland or San Francisco. Um, so that, it's, I don't know, one of those potential silver linings that, yeah. that could be happening. Um, so we'll see. I guess um, probably back up for those who are totally unfamiliar. Can you describe just the brass tacks of what happens in an audio description? Uh, sit like performance sure. and a haptic tour if they were to be. <clears throat> sure. So audio description is this term for providing a verbal description of a live of a performance event and or a can or a film of, uh, and describing the meaningful visual elements of, of, a, of an event. Um, and, uh, yeah. And much like a, a radio, a baseball radio announcer does, you know, like tells you what you're not seeing that is relevant and important. Um, and the practice has been around, in the state since i don't know the 1980s i think it's when people started doing it it's much more advanced in the united kingdom where they have much a much stronger disability arts culture and funding um uh and so we've been kind of importing some of those practices and then one of the practices around you know, that i think the verbal gets a little bit more attention because it's easy to understand but we do what's called haptic access tours or um, traditionally are often called touch tours, but my PhD shines through and makes me want to underline the fact that letting, letting visually impaired audience members walk through the space and feel how big is this space? Oh, it takes me 12 steps to get across. Oh, there's a chair sitting here. Oh, there's a throne over here. Oh, there's a suit of armor over here and feeling with both feeling tactily with their hands and also experiencing with their bodies scale and volume and things like that are actually also very important in the making of work of making work accessible and just signaling people to the ways that different things they will experience in terms of sound and and scent and um, during the and vibration during the show will be relating and to 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 the ongoing progression of events nice i like so how yeah. baroque your example was there's a throne and a suit of armor. <laughs> i like to see yeah, that, that yeah. work the, who knows who knows where that came yeah. from yeah i mean i have to I do this explanation explanation often enough i try to keep it fresh yeah <laughs> i appreciate that um uh, I, when you were talking about the development of the equipment to make this possible, it made me think I was looking mm -hmm. at your website and the, uh, for the audio description, the kind of like mic getup looks, uh, 
kind of leaps and bounds from when I saw it in 2018. I feel like in 2018, it had a very steampunk quality of like, I don't know, the not as maybe like put together the same way. The one on the website looks like more high tech. I don't know if that has changed I don't know. at all. But I, I think it's the same. I, I actually think it's the same. It may have just okay. been your first impression of that. Yeah. I think it is still a little, it's not quite steampunk, but um, yeah, it's a stenographer's mask that people use in courtrooms, um, which I never even actually really understand, but it's designed yeah. so that you can be speak to a microphone and it covers your face in a particular way that um, I wonder if that's, if that sound will come through the recording, you know, yeah. but it covers your face so that we can be in small houses. We can be sitting at the back of the house and describing, and then it goes through a wireless headset to a wireless system to headsets that people who are listening are, are then hearing that. Mm -hmm. And the whole audience is not listening to the whole thing in bigger houses. Like when we've done, we did several things at San Francisco ballet last year. And, and then we just can also sit in a tech booth and, and, don't have to speak through the funny microphone but it also it is a quite an interesting visual i've been in a because it almost looks like you know i had a i had a friend come to a show that we described i described in berlin and she said at, at the end she came up to me and she's like oh god i'm glad to see you're okay i walked in and i saw you had that thing over your mouth and i'm like oh my god what's happened to jess he's having to sit there and take oxygen while he's you know while he's watching the show and it's like yeah no it wasn't really that she was and then i thought you looked a little bit like hannibal lecter yeah <laughs> maybe that's yeah i love steampunk but hannibal lecter or like uh the most recent Mad Max, yeah. the bad guys. That yeah. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. Um, so kind of like shifting gears from the research and work that you've been doing. Uh, I don't know if reporting is the right word, but you know, being a describer and being a kind of guide for this type of access, mm -hmm. how has mm -hmm. that then informed the work you create um, as a performer choreographer? Um, it's been, um, super interesting. I mean, I also in sort of just before starting to do this, I had just finished a PhD up at UC Davis and I wrote a lot about sort of phenomenologies of perception in performance and really kind of breaking down like who is seeing what and what. And I have, there's a chapter in my dissertation that's all about different dance and performance pieces that were performed in the dark, like, um, and uh and and how what that did and how it directed us into other senses and other ex kind of experiences um how it inhibits some kinds of visual objectification and forces us to feel and bring just to bring our attention our we have more attention available to other senses if we're not so focused in our eyes which as a culture we're we're quite an um, here's a here's a PhD word. We're quite an oculocentric culture. We're very vision centered, and um, and sometimes to the exclusion of other senses, and to you know to our detriment of um, that we're not paying attention to other things because our eyes are focused on in a particular way, and especially with screens and and media now, you know that we can become really unpresent be in the world around us because we're focused in a certain way with our eyes. Um, anyway, so that was, 
that that was already kind of interesting to me and and as i said my work kind of dealt that in um some degrees and then i feel like since um since doing this more i also i i sort of saw a, an opportunity like i've I've always been really interested in more about the the consequences of live performance and the three dimensionality of it. And what does live performance have to offer that a film of a performance doesn't offer? And so what exists in three dimensional space um, in terms of vibration and scent and volume and temperature and, and lots of different things um the the sort of locations of sound and the directionality of sound that's different than if i'm listening on my home stereo um and so those things were quite i, I saw it as a, an opportunity to decenter vision as the and to direct my audience's attention into their other senses and actually ultimately i think i mean i've had a number of pieces where I've, um, my piece, my 2014 piece performance research experiment, number two, where we actually measured the, the front row of the audience's heart rate during the piece and their galvanic skin response. And, um, and then projected those on the wall during the piece. So everybody could kind of track, Oh, she's really reacting to that one. Or he's really reacting in this way to that. <clears throat> or <laughs> that person is really not reacting at all to any of this. And so um, I've always been interested in terms of, in terms of what, what I love about live performance is my physical experience of it as an audience member to go me sitting in my seat, bouncing up and down or feeling the vibration of that subwoofer underneath my chair. Um, those things are when something really works for me is when my body is really activated and not, not to the exclusion of my mind, but in, in tandem with, and, and working, you know, in that, in that way. Um, so I'm, uh, I have often been like, okay. And dissatisfied. Also, I think we have both have this very oculocentric sense of live performance and also a very sort of, linguistic or language-based um, representational um, uh, priority in a lot, you know, it's like a lot of people, I think the reason they don't like dance is that people walk out of dancing and go, what was it about? You know, or what, you know, what did it mean? And it's like, wait, you just had an amazing experience of like amazing bodies. Did like, did it move you? Did it like, what are, so I've often been, much more interested in prioritizing the sort of phenomenological consequence of like, what did the piece do? And that's when I teach composition. Now I'm also, I, t I tend to want, I tend to point my students' attention toward that to don't ask what your work, I, I'm, I don't care as much what it means as much as what it does. Like, did it move people? Did it make people cry? Did it make people happy? Did it make people jump up and run out of the theater because you made a horrible smell? <laughs> did, you know, what are, what are the actual performative in the, in the sort of most um, nerdy sense of the word perform? What did the work 
physically produce in the world. So that's always kind of been my, that performativity. It's, you know, in our, in PhD world, we call that the performative turn of going from the sort of representational view of art of like, Oh, that's a picture of a thing. And it's the art itself is referring to something else um, as opposed to the art being an experience in and of itself. You know, when I think of like, Mark goes paint, you know, black paintings that are like, it's not a painting. It's of something else. It's black paint on a big piece of canvas. It's beautiful. Um, so I tend to want my work to be a little bit more going in that direction. Like what does the thing do? So, and I think the access um, thinking then through who's accessing what and what are the what are the physical and perceptual consequences that my work and and impacts and effects that my work is producing is is what helps me do that. So um, thing overlaps there of like putting the audience on stage where they can actually be where we can actually physically touch them or they can touch us or they can feel us moving past them, um, then become really interesting and give us a whole other layer of perceptual interaction to have with an audience that also comes with a whole other layer of, of responsibility. Cause one, you know, like I all of a sudden have a heightened, responsibility to establish consent and go, if I put you in the middle of the stage, I, I, and I, if I'm going to, if I'm going to propose touching you, I need to be clear that you're buying in, that you're opting into that. So it just uh, expands out into a lot of different discourses around who is, who's consenting to what and what am I as an artist proposing and, and am I, um, yeah, is it, is it consensual or not? And I think those are all important questions to be addressing these days. Definitely. And when you're talking about that, I'm thinking of as the perspective of an audience member and being engaging with work like yours, where there's going to be some type of like haptic or touch base sensation that you're prepared for, um, in you know, an interactive way, it feels very different from say being at a different show and being like, can I get a volunteer and like, come on, you know, like come on down and like be part of this, like, you know, here we go. Um, and I think a lot of people, maybe when they are told that there's some type of interactivity, that's the path they imagine rather than it being a path that has more to do with like accessibility and, uh, bringing a proprioceptive capacity mm-hmm. deeper into the performance experience yeah. and also just a greater relationship to space because you'll probably, mm-hmm. if you're engaging with the performers that way, you'll probably engage with the audience, fellow audience members in a deeper way. Yeah. Hopefully too. Well, and I think, I think your physical experience is more invoked and I, there's a, a blind um, art critic in Berlin that we worked with on Invisible um, named Gerald Pirner. And Gerald wrote about my piece with Claire, the, the way you look at me tonight, and then also was on the in the in the creative team for Invisible and wrote some things about um, about how the the way that we're producing work 
invokes his experience of space in a particular way. And he talks about how at, um, as sighted people, we, <clears throat> we flatten space. We don't actually embody space. He said, you know, I'll walk into a room and a sighted person is guiding is like giving me guidance about what's in the room. And he goes, I notice they only describe all the surfaces that they can see. And I go like, oh, you're not actually in the room. You're not actually inhabiting this space. You're just looking around at the surfaces that, that are surrounding you. And, he, and it was one of the nicest compliments he made about, about my work. He's like, in Jess Curtis's work, you actually feel the space. You actually feel your presence and that your body has volume and you're taking up or you're inhabiting part of the space and there are other bodies around you that are also inhabiting or moving through the space. And I, 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 that made me really happy. That was really a, a kind of reflection about the work that I'm like, yes, right. And even on a, I think it's one of those synergistic things of going like on a level that I hadn't really thought about that and how, but how his experience as a blind person him so articulate about his his sense of space and how he experiences space in a way that really is a rich way to to reinform my experience of space and go like oh yeah that's really cool which i think is one of the one of the great things about about addressing accessibility and and diversity and sensory diversity in our audience is that it just makes all of our experience that much richer and I'm another colleague of mine who worked with us on the last show, Georgina Klieg, um, who write, has, writes about blindness. She's at UC Berkeley and um, writes about blindness and art in particular. Her last book is super interesting. It's called More Than Meets the Eye, What Blindness Brings to Art. And um, she, she really is a big advocate of this, of like, right, when you start, ma- if you start making work, accessible to a broader diversity of uh, people with with more sensory diversity you're going to learn a lot more both as other audience as audience members and as artists that we we get a much so much richer experience of the art definitely um thinking about the one diversity in the making also because we've been talking about space, I know you have done do work in traditional theaters and site specific um, outdoors. And could you talk about just the the differences in keeping that mission or, or that um, idea of accessibility and having this performative turn when you're on the street in San Francisco, or you know, being producing work not in a theater, and and what the challenges or huh. or realizations are that come from that type of experience sure um uh i mean we just so i mean one of the things that made me really happy this week we produced this series we called pop-up performance projects and that is um this year is curated by um gabriel christian who's one of the was has been in a couple of my pieces as a performer and as a maker in his own right they're in their own right and is um and curated this year we decided to curate all black artists into that and and this last weekend was a show at um at by styles alexander and jose abad 
um, that happened out of the Palace of Fine Arts. And it was just so beautiful and so amazing. Like, epic. I was like, wow, this is, this is kind of a process-oriented program. And they made like an hour and 20 minutes of material. And, but anyway, I think, you know, access, um, access can mean so many things. It's like um, when you produce work on the street, no one has to buy a ticket. So it's economically way more accessible um, in, in that, that, and that's a real thing. And people, <clears throat> I mean, one of the concepts in our pop-up performance series is also bringing our work out to places where people who don't even have an artistic, like a practice of coming to small hundred person theaters, those people can access it because they don't have to go anywhere. They're accidentally accessing it. And that just, it both allows artists to have the experience of a sort of quote unquote normal public seeing their work and going, Ooh, what's that? Like it was beautiful. I mean, this last weekend was so amazing. There were, there were probably 40 or 50 people that came out from, you know, our publicity to, um, to the, the space at Palace of Fine Arts, but there were constantly people walking by and then stopping. And then when Styles and Jose started moving around the, the lake out there, followed us. And then there were like three or four different parties of like quinceañeras and uh, one proposal, like a guy who was like making a proposal to his girlfriend. And, you know, all of these did because it's so picturesque. These people in like, giant gorgeous gowns you know to do photos out there but that then we're watching our performance or part of our performance or other people were sort of watching watching our performance through the foreground of these you know 15 year old girls in in formal wear um and i just love that i love that kind of that again i, I feel like we can get so rarefied in our museums and galleries and small performance art spaces. And we're just, we end up performing for a very in, in, ingrown kind of crowd. Um, but I also think it's, and I, I mean, on the sort of more phenomenological level, I, one of the things I like wrote about in my PhD too was, was just how different spaces mobilize different, kinds of attention for us and that I really like like the difference between how it is to to be confined to a seat for two hours in a theater or for an hour with an intermission and then another hour in a theater produces a very particular you know with everybody facing one direction and having one point of view um, is really different from how if I bring work into a gallery or and and the audience is free to walk around and and come and go and see other bits of art. Or um, for a while, there was one uh, a, a series of work that I made called the Symmetry Project, and we brought things on stage, and then we also did extended installations in museums and galleries. And it's like just noticing if you publicize a beginning time and an end time, that um, people come and want to sit down and watch. And if you're just there in the gallery during from the opening to the closing hours of the gallery, then people come and they look at you and then they go look at the painting in the next room. And then they come back and see if you changed and did anything different. And, um, and it really mobilized a different kind of attention and a different kind of 
both the detailed attention and less of an expectation of things progressing at a particular pace over the hour that you've got to have a dramatic arc or, um, and really mobilizes a, a really different kind of attention in each of those situations. Um, and yeah. And, and what, I mean, an artist that I like a lot is, um, Tino Segal is a visual artist that works in Berlin and has had, I, I was in a piece of his that played at the Berkeley art museum and it's a solo sequence that you you move through a series of positions that refer to a bunch of different contemporary artists including Bruce Nauman and a couple of other um, folks anyway you're basically lying on the floor of the gallery for two hours at, at in a shift and then replaced every two hours by another artist and and I remember being in there in the early morning as the gallery had opened and these two nice little ladies came around the corner and like came over and like touched me on the shoulder like are you okay do you want us to call the guard and then the guard you know the docent didn't get there quite fast enough to go he's, he's art, art. Yeah. <laughs> you know he's art yeah yeah so anyway oh, that's great. I, but i think those different kinds of attention to are what i think is really beautiful to you know how it is and to what people expect and how you can you can work with that and play with that uh, want to be aware of your time is there any other yeah. thing you want to touch on or anything about the show you want to mention specifically or um, um just i'm really excited about it as i think i may i mentioned maybe before anyway i'm starting to the the nine different artists the teams that are working are have started showing like showing drafts of, of the work they're working on. And they're really, really beautiful, really diverse, really different, both kind. I mean, all sort of all in the contemporary art vein, but, but really beautiful work is happening. And I'm really, I'm honored and proud to be, to be associated with it and, and really looking forward to people coming out and seeing it. So yeah, check it exciting. out at, yeah. you know, jesscurtisgravity.org <laughs> and, um, and on our events page. And then also at counterpulse, counterpulse.org has an event page that where the, you know, the online box office info is. And right. I hope and, people will come out and, and, and I see here. And also include those details it. in the episode drop. Uh, so Great. It'll be there. Hard copy. Well, soft copy online awesome. as well. Um, okay. All right. Well, thank you right. so much for talking with me. It's an absolute pleasure. And Super. I look forward thank you, Garth. to the production. And uh, okay. have a look wonderful forward. week. That concludes this week's episode of Reverence Desk. The theme music is composed by Heather Stockton. You can find more information at Reference Desk Podcast on Instagram. Thanks for listening. <laughs>